considered fear a doorway, an invitation, and we decided to walk through it. That's a quote from Ryan Burke, today's guest on The Curiosity Files. The podcast designed to build the capacity to ask meaningful questions in service to students and educators. I'm Shel Wabrek at Love It, a K-12 school in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Derek Ryan from Tabor Academy, a 9 through 12 boarding and day school in Marion, Massachusetts. And I'm Kate Turnbull from Metairie Park Country Day, a pre-K-12 school in Metairie, Louisiana. We started this podcast when our faculty was separated because of the outbreak of coronavirus. The goal was to continue to feed an intellectually hungry faculty and to find unique ways to gather as a community around topics that supported our core values. Our conversations with big picture thinkers in the field of education and beyond strives to activate a transformative future for thinking and learning. This is file number 14. Ryan, Derek Krein is going to introduce you. We, we arm wrestled for it and Derek won. <laughs> it is you, Ryan, so a lot of it should be familiar. Um, after 20 years of working as a teacher learning specialist, dean of students, middle and upper division head in uh, both public and independent schools, Ryan is now a full-time Ellen Dewar and senior partner at Leadership and Design. With a master's degree in applied behavioral science and experience in family therapy and systems thinking, his approach to working with school leaders and teams is unique and brings both a clinical lens as well as practical school leadership experience. Ryan is currently working with schools and organizational leaders as a coach, as well as on strategic planning, schedule redesign, communication and feedback, and other messy and ambiguous school challenges. Ryan lives L&D's vision, building capacity, creating conversation, making connections. There are few people weaving in and out of schools as empowering as Ryan. I will tell you it's him. He will tell you it's you. Turns out it's both. We give each of our guests a superhero name, and there are lots that would fit well in this case. Captain Cut the Crap, Senator So What, but I'll start with Ryan's clear, direct spark. So the name that we're going to bestow, the superhero name that we'll bestow upon Ryan today is The Catalyst. Ryan, welcome. Yay! Thank you, Derek. I, I was, I, I guess I should have, this session is, when we originally brainstormed this session, it was on fear. And I, I should have mentioned to Shell my fear of having somebody read my bio while I have to listen. A lot of times when I, when I introduce myself, one of the things I will say is that for whatever reason, some of this I, is just partly maybe who I am as a person, but then also I think some of it is just kind of what's kind of luck of the draw is that like throughout my entire career, I have always found myself in jobs where my job, for whatever reason, is to deliver really bad news to a lot of people. And so right from the very beginning of my career, in my first year as a teacher, the first thing I did was I had 110 special ed students on my caseload. I was a special ed teacher on the Oregon coast, and I had 110 kids that were out of compliance meaning that had we been sued in that moment by their parents, we would have lost as a school district. And so I had to call all 110 parents and tell them that we were not doing our job for their child and then get them to come in and meet with me so that we could update all of that work. And you can imagine that it was like 110 straight phone calls where we had never met, but they hated me right from the outset. And then from there on, right, I just worked my way into 
dealing with high school discipline, which is just an up at dawn pride swallowing siege, right? That just never, you're just constantly making bad decisions and disappointing someone. So anyways, I'm really excited to be, like, I'm really excited to be here for a couple of reasons. Number one, I love the group of people that are putting all these uh, sessions together. And two, I think the topic of fear is something that because of the nature of the topic, we don't talk about it. And so then it ends up impacting us as educators in our work and we never get an opportunity to unpack it or learn anything about it. And so I'm really excited to be able to talk about it. And you can imagine, you know, if you say, well, what do you do for your profession? And you say, well, I talk about fear. Like you don't get invited back. It's not a, it's not a fun party trick to say, hey, you want to talk about fear over here? And so I think it's an opportunity to sort of uh, create a venue for that topic in a way that does not have to be sort of doom and gloom. And certainly I, um, I cringe at the, the thought that, you know, people have been afraid, right? But I mean, oftentimes what, what we're trying to deal with are, are those conversations that need to be had that we're avoiding for whatever reason. So I thought a lot about what I was going to call this, and I didn't want to call it fear. So what I decided to call it is, who told you that it would be easy? Whoever did that is to blame. And it was this thinking that kind of this original fallacy that when things get hard, at least for me personally, I find my brain resisting that my life is hard. So I, like when I get into my, myself into this hard situation, I find myself thinking like, well, God, I wish my life wasn't hard or why is it hard, you know? And so one of the things I thought I would introduce is that whoever gave us this idea that things are supposed to be easy and so that then when it does get hard, we're like disappointed, those people are to blame, right? What they should have said is it's mostly going to be hard and especially if you want to be an educator. And I think had they said that at the beginning, I, I don't know that I would have struggled half as much as I did when I was in schools. And then obviously this just continues no matter how you're dealing with education. The second thing I wanted to share is just this quote, which is that we tend to suffer more in imagination than in reality. So I go like one of the things I do for a living is go around and help people have difficult conversations. When I do that, what I find is that very few schools are having really difficult conversations that go wrong. Most schools are just avoiding having difficult conversations. So in their mind, they imagine them going really badly. And so then they don't have them. And then by the time I arrive, everyone is upset and nobody has actually had the difficult conversation. And so it's just a reminder that kind of, when we think about fear, we're thinking about a lot of different types of things. I can't, there's no way that I could go introduce myself any better than getting a, like I didn't think I was going to get a superhero name. So like, that's already a win, right? But I've had a lot of different varied experiences and um, find myself now working on kind of strange, messy, ambiguous projects. And what's great about that is it feels very much like being a middle school teacher. You know, when I was a middle school teacher, I always had a plan, but then kids would walk through the door. And so I feel the same way kind of about being, uh, you know, well, really any job I've had in education, right? I always had a plan in the morning and then it always went awry every single day. And again, like whoever, whoever planted the idea that having a plan and then executing that plan was ever going to work, I think is sort of to blame, right? Because it just doesn't, that's not how it works. And COVID-19 obviously is a little bit maybe extreme on that end, but um, it's a good example.
So I want to start by breaking you out into a breakout room to kind of get us thinking and talking about uh, what brought you to this session. Are there any goals you have in your career that for whatever reason in your mind feel out of reach? Now, again, if you're going to answer this question, that's a fair amount of vulnerability, right? Because you have to decide. I might tell these three strangers or these three people that I know kind of well what my goal that I don't think I'm going to reach is. And again, so it's challenged by choice. If you don't want to answer this question, please don't answer. That's fine. But it's just kind of a provocation, which is we all have goals. We all want to do things in our career. And some of those things kind of feel easily attainable and some of them feel like out of reach. And then thirdly, like what do you find yourself sort of avoiding or actively working to ensure doesn't happen professionally? And then maybe as a follow-up, like why? why? Like why are you trying to make sure that that doesn't happen? Um, you, you can start with maybe like the entry level, which is what brings you to the session today. Um, you might think about these next two, what goals do you have in your career that feel out of reach or what are you sort of always actively avoiding and why? We'll give you about 10 minutes in a group of four to have that uh, conversation and then we'll see you back in the main room. I would love to hear just a couple uh, things that you heard and if there were other things that you heard that really resonated or you'd like to share them, I think that would be great to hear. Ryan, I was in a group with someone who, as he talked about why he was here, he said, I'm really interested in understanding fear as a part of strength. Love it. I heard this topic and can't help but think of the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? So I, I really think exploring this thing is, a really, is, is really a gift. Just the kind of gift that we all would like to receive. Maybe we didn't know we needed it, but. <laughs> no, it's like when someone says broccoli is really good for you, you should eat it. And you're like, well, I don't really like broccoli. Thank you, though. We talked about just the fear of wanting to be a really good teacher and wanting to do a really good job because we all want to and not, not bring our fear into the classroom in a way that would be a detriment to kids yeah i can i like if if we had all all educators across the country on this call right you'd have that's a everyone's head would be going like this okay well, i'm going to sort of move forward here apparently i can't okay so i want to talk a little bit about just from a psychological standpoint, like what is fear? And, and the way that I'm choosing to frame this is um, what I'm calling sort of capital F fear and, and, and little fear or little F fear. And so I'm just going to make kind of the distinction around what I think the difference between these two things are. So when I think of capital F fear, these are base fears of human beings and they're systemic and worth being aware of. And when, when I say the word systemic, what I mean by that is that when these base level fears come up, we're having uh, an experience in our mind, we're thinking, we're having an experience uh, in our body that's physiological. So we're, we're basically experiencing these base level fears in, in all sorts of systems in all ways. And sort of the most prominent of the base level fears is like the fear of death. And for some people, like if you do a study of people that are afraid of death, some people are really afraid of like being dead, like actually after they're dead, not being around. And for other people, the fear of death is much more about the actual process of dying itself. And so I think 
this is the basis of the fears that are out there. And you can see because of COVID-19, some of the polarization of the conversation that we're having, some of the vitriol, some of the emotion, right? Is because for some people, there is a real base level fear being triggered by COVID-19 and for other people, there isn't. And so there's this really different way that people are experiencing this conversation. And of course, nobody's really having that conversation. So we think we're all talking about the same thing, but oftentimes we're really having that experience really different. So this is kind of like what I would consider a capital F fear. It's like base level systemic, like very universal, goes across cultures, goes across races, goes across genders, ages, like it, it really transfers. Another base level fear is like being alone. And just biologically, way, way, way back in the day, the best uh, and easiest way to die actually was to be alone. Being alone is something that is a base level fear and also biologically it comes from like when we're alone, we're actually more biologically in peril than when we're together. Even though we're no longer kind of in a space where being alone is as dangerous, it's still kind of baked into us biologically and it's a base level fear. So if you've ever, for example, been out in the woods and you've had the opportunity to be in the woods during the day when it's light out, and then when you're in the woods at night when it's dark, most people, and again, not all people, but most people are much more afraid of being in the woods in the dark. And for some people, the idea of being in the woods when it is dark is, is so fearful that it's almost overwhelming. And what I think is really interesting about this is that there are a couple of ways to mitigate this fear. One is to make it light. So if it's really dark and you're scared, one of the ways to, to help you feel less scared in the middle of the woods, if it's dark, is to make it lighter. Another way is to add people. So if you're alone, the level of fear is higher than if you're with somebody else. So it sort of speaks to this idea um, of these sort of stacking base level fears. So when we're afraid, we have this physiological response. And if you've ever been in the woods at night and you've been afraid, you'll notice like my heart is beating faster. Um, you'll actually feel your body and its physiological response to being afraid. And what's interesting about this is that that part of your response is predictable. It kind of translates across different people in similar ways. We know about it, we can study it scientifically. And there's a lot of similarities in terms of how it physiologically shows up for us in our bodies. So the second fear is this idea of kind of getting sick or having our health deteriorate. And, and again, like this is something that's sort of universally felt and understood, but sort of the second part of a fear response is we have this emotional response. And not that we wanna to get too heavily into the brain science here, but an emotional response is there, there are particular areas of the brain that regulate emotional responses. And really an emotion is just your body's way of processing whatever is going on in your thinking. And so what's interesting about people's fear response is that the, the physiological part of their response is very predictable, known, shared amongst people. But the emotional response is often really hard to predict, varies wildly between people, between groups of people, different, Different um, cultures experience emotional responses really differently to, the, to similar things. 
And oftentimes your emotional response is not rational at all. And one of the biggest problems is that when someone, it, you'll actually, you can apply this right away in your school. You're gonna be coming into contact with all sorts of people this fall that are having a fear response. And one of the worst things you can do is meet somebody's fear and irrationality with a rational response. One of the most common things that we do is when people come to us fearful and irrational, we try and explain to them rationally why their fear is not needed. And there is nothing that we know to be more unhelpful in that situation than meeting that irrationality with rationality. And so you can just kind of put that in your little toolkit. Um, and instead, what we want to do is we want to reflect back to them what they're feeling and give them an opportunity to be heard. And I think it's just a really something that we constantly have to remind ourselves when we are getting irrational or emotional responses from uh, people in our community. The other distinction I want to make when we talk about fear is the difference between like danger and then what we, what we experience as like a perceived threat. And so this is not a session that says like when there is a, you know, a Bengal tiger chasing you in the woods that you shouldn't feel afraid, right? That is a very real danger. And I, I'm not in any way, shape or form suggesting that we seek out that type of experience. Um, and that's really different than something that we're perceiving as a threat, which may not necessarily be an, an actual threat or may not actually pose the same danger that we're perceiving it to be. Um, so these are similar, but they function differently in the body in terms of how we process them. And then also perceived threat is much more psychological than danger, um, which tends to be very physiological and kind of in the moment. And so that's kind of where we transition to what I'm calling like little, little F fear. And little F fear, just so we know, is like the majority of what we deal with as, as professionals, as educators, is this more sort of psychological fear that really lives in our thinking. And so this is where we find anxiety, avoidance, worry, patterns of behavior, risk avoidance. These are all sort of what I'm referring to as psychological fear, little f fear. And so I'm trying to separate that from, you know, some of the actual dangers, you know, like obviously fear keeps us alive, right? It keeps us from falling off cliffs. It keeps us from having things happen to us that we absolutely want to avoid. So just a couple of examples. This was an ad that was out there. And one of the things I wanted to point out is that people use fear in advertising all the time against us. And so if you'll notice here, this is a photo of some recommendations around um, people handling themselves around COVID-19. And you'll notice the red line that outlines this person's head is, it's, it, it looks like it's just outlining the person, but it's meant to be sort of mimicking uh, somebody's heartbeat stopping. And it's sort of a way in which people use psychological fear to motivate. And it's just a reminder that at all times, this type of thinking is operating even in our uh, sort of advertising world, but we're never talking about it. So we're never talking about the way that, you know, for example, this company is using psychological fear to sort of motivate the type of behavior that they want. And again, like there's good intentions here that people should know the symptoms of COVID-19, right? And we want, that's great, obviously. And at the same time, we don't really see or notice that, it, that embedded in this is trying to trigger our psychological fear 
to sort of listen to whatever the message is. So it's just kind of a reminder that these things are living around us all the time. We often have all sorts of fear of loss of control when in actuality, we don't have control to begin with. And so we have an illusion of control, but most often when we're really fearing the loss of control, we don't have it in the first place. And then this is, I think, a little bit of what Aaron was referring to. Um, it's like the fear of confirming our fear. So in schools where students or parents give feedback to teachers, many teachers never read the feedback because they're afraid to find out what is in there. And so one of the things I've sort of studied is, you know, what types of systems and mechanisms do schools have for giving useful feedback to leaders or to teachers? And what we found is that oftentimes when feedback is given, you know, people aren't actually reading it because they're afraid to read what the content of the feedback is. Um, and usually our fear in education is we're afraid to fail. We're afraid that someone's going to find out that we're not good. We care so much about our students and that's our intent, obviously. And so the thought that somebody would think that we're not good is something that as educators, we're just really fearful about. Key component to little f fear is that it doesn't actually help you stay alive. And I think this gets to a little bit of what Shell was saying, which is, you know, I want to explore fear as something that I can use as powerful. And, you know, the, the metaphor that I'm going to leave you with today is that fear is a doorway, that every time we're afraid of something, and, I'm, and when I say this, I'm talking about little f fear, not big f fear. So in terms of our psychological fears, our fears of loss of control, our fears of being good, our fears of doing everything perfectly, or our fears of making a mistake or failure, when we're afraid of something, we can see it as a doorway or an invitation to do it, to take the risk. So it's not keeping you alive and it's actually preventing you from getting what you want and it sort of keeps you in this pattern of homeostasis. And homeostasis, for those of you that have a background in science, really comes from uh, biological systems, and, but, it, but it functions in all systems. And it's this idea that um, we want things to be regular. So we want them to be predictable and regular. Homeostasis means that things aren't changing or things aren't coming in from outside, but it doesn't necessarily mean that things are healthy. So one of the things I wanted to show you, you may be familiar with the Kungensteen uh, Institute, which is where a lot of independent school educators go to get educated. And you'll notice that they have a summer institute for early career teachers. I had the opportunity to do some work with Klingenstein, and what I noticed is they have this uh, institute, but they only let teachers in the institute that have had two to five years of experience. And so I was kind of curious about that, and I was asking folks at Klingenstein, well, why is that? Why do you only have this institute? Like, well, you know, what if you have six years of experience or eight years of experience? What they said is that there's all sorts of evidence that basically says after five years of experience, teachers stop changing. It was just kind of an interesting reminder that very quickly as educators, we basically find our homeostasis. There's this small window of time in our first five years as educators where we have this opportunity to sort of grow our practice and change and kind of get out of that pattern. And then by about year five, we're pretty set in our patterns. And so I really believe that this conversation we're having here about fear, but also this conversation about sort of actively pursuing this lifelong learning process that includes change and growth and really breaking this pattern is absolutely paramount because the, the fact that five years into our education career, 
we would sort of be set and, and you know, to a certain extent, not worth investing in, in terms of institutes like this makes me very uncomfortable. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can all sort of push back against that. And sort of a core tenet of systems thinking is that all systems are always trying to seek this homeostasis. We're always seeking the comfort of not changing, which is why we don't like a lot of change. But one of the ahas for me was that homeostasis is not synonymous with health. And that evolution comes from breaking out of these patterns of comfort and stasis. And so you need mechanisms in schools to sort of prevent what naturally happens, which is falling into this sort of predictable, stable pattern, which is not necessarily what you want. It's not necessarily what's going to get you what you want in your career. And I do not believe that it is what is best for kids. And this is always uncomfortable psychologically. So if we want to push against this, our colleagues are going to be uncomfortable. We are going to be uncomfortable. And we have to know that going in because who wants to do something uncomfortable? Well, nobody, unless we can really study why we would do it and take that action knowing full well that it's going to be uncomfortable on purpose. Patterns always feel safe. We prefer them. And the problem is, is that patterns are circular. So they lead us to right where we already are. And that's what we're trying to avoid. I'm gonna put you back into the same group so that you have just a little bit of familiarity with the folks that you're talking with. And I want you to think a little bit about these questions here, which is what patterns do you notice in your work life? We all have patterns. So this is not about uh, you know trying to out ourselves. I mean, some of our patterns might be really positive, some of them might not be so positive, and so there's, it's, it's not really meant to have you sharing one or the other, but it's just an opportunity to reflect a little bit on what do you see sort of reoccurring or happening that feels almost inevitable, like it's just on autopilot, and then kind of as you've heard me talking a little bit about sort of capital F fear or little f fear, like what reflections do you have about those patterns? And then also as it relates to this first question, which is like, you know, what are they? And then how do they show up in your career in terms of advancing your learning or not, or impacting the kids that you teach or the faculty that you administer or kind of depending on what position you have. It would be great to hear just well, a couple things. Number one, if there was something that really surprised you or anything that you heard in the conversation that you think has value in terms of just sort of echoing it back out to the larger group. I think it's really interesting, just as we started talking about patterns, noticing when the same kind of person keeps showing up in our lives over and over again, like, oh, there's that personality type again. Hmm, what's the universe trying to tell me about that? We do a lot of career coaching and oftentimes people are trying to get away from a certain person. And, and you know, sometimes we'll get into that conversation. Like, I can't wait to see who's gonna play this role in your next school, how long, but we, sometimes when we do shadow work, we call it your arch nemesis. You know, it's like an archetype of person that, you know, finds a way into your life to, to thwart you. Individually, you were talking about how it's important when you meet someone with high fears, how to kind of reflect that fear back to them and, and not respond rationally. I think individually, we have different levels of competency at doing that. <laughs> I think it's harder collectively. Like I'm thinking about like you come back as a school in the circumstance of fear. Personally, I can be good, bad, or in the middle of it, depending on my intent and effort. I haven't seen a lot in group settings creating space where people are allowed to express their emotions, where then it's met constructively. 
uh, you know, where you can really help people through it, like you're talking about. And I was just intrigued by like what that looked like, you know. Yeah, wait, I think you're you're making a point that I feel like is incredibly fascinating. I, I, this the point you just made has gotten so interesting in certain circumstances, especially when people start to cry. So like if you're in a large group of educators and someone starts to cry, someone will often bring up that they don't want to cry as a part of their profession or like it's unprofessional to cry. And it always seems really interesting to me because every single time in my entire life that I have ever had like a strong emotion and, and certainly crying, like I don't feel like I've ever made that choice. Like, so it's not like you choose to cry, right? It just you know, as we like to say, water starts shooting out of your eyeballs, right? It just happens. And so it's so interesting that we don't have a lot of great spaces where people can kind of actually experience what it feels like to be human and have emotions that feels professional. Like you can hold that container. Other thoughts? I teach classes where literally I can't stop myself from making connections to the present day. I'm fearful about what masks are going to do to change the atmosphere of the room. We all got a message about how our rooms are gonna be organized in a way that we can't change, which I presume is gonna mean that we're not gonna be able to have the seminar style of conversation that I feel like works. So my habit of always bringing things to what I think is an interesting, maybe a little like thought-provoking place, I'm fearful about how that's gonna land you know, if I can't even see people's faces. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, obviously a very shared fear. And I think what's interesting about that too is you have the fear itself, right? The fear of how this is gonna go over in my classroom. And then if you trace that fear back to the person who has the fear, it really gets back to this fear of being a good teacher. These masks are gonna get in the way of me being a good teacher, which are gonna trigger my base level fear of wanting to be good. Right, and be accepted for who I am as a teacher, right? And there's all these threats, right? So like a mask is a threat or, you know, fill in the blank. So I really appreciate you just taking, you know, just sharing that, right? Because that's just one example of, you know, the, the, the hundred or maybe even more different types of fears that can come up. So again, like just taking with you that you're going to be um, continuing to reflect on and looking for the things that show up in your life kind of as patterns, thinking about the relationship of those patterns to this concept that in every system, our own system, the systems that we're in, we're always seeking this homeostasis, this lack of change, this sort of comfort zone, and that that comfort zone is not always synonymous. It doesn't mean that it can't be, but it's not always synonymous with health. Oftentimes fear shows up in school systems as avoiding conflict, tension, avoiding difficult conversations or feedback, um, again, I was saying earlier in the call that oftentimes when we get called in to sort of mitigate these difficult conversations or to facilitate them, what I end up finding out is that for 20 years, uh, there has been a conversation that needs to be had. And for 20 years, no one's been talking about it. So it's just rare that we end up going into a situation and dealing with what I would like call actual conflict. And oftentimes what we're doing is like dealing with this anticipation of conflict which is really different than, uh, for example, when I was you know, doing my clinical work as a therapist, you know, oftentimes you would end up in an office with a couple and that couple would be actually 
in conflict, right? So they wouldn't be avoiding conflict. They'd be sort of, you know, the job is totally different in terms of managing that active conflict. And then again, I thought it was really interesting when we studied feedback that in a significant amount of cases, people were soliciting feedback, but not actually looking at it because, you know, it could have been that that feedback was 98% positive and that the feedback would have felt really good to get, but people weren't finding out because of the fear of, and, you know, I think people were accurately, you know, realizing that it was not that big of a percentage, whatever critical feedback there was, was in the minority, but it was so fear inducing that people were foregoing the 98% of positive feedback to avoid the 2% of perceived negative or critical feedback. Another way that it shows up is we play small and, and that can be you personally playing small, or that can be schools playing small or uh, the science department playing small. And so we end up really minimizing our goals because we want to play it safe. We, you know, we sort of have a, a risk algorithm that leads to this consequence. Another way it shows up is that we frame discomfort as bad and comfort as good. And so then anyone that is bringing up and even the edges of attention or the edges of a conflict is sort of framed in a school community as somebody who is causing disruption and therefore bad. And so pretty quickly, cultures like this make it clear to people that your job is to perpetuate the status quo, not, not make waves. And again, if we think back to that Klingenstein example of two to five years, right? If you have that teacher or that educator or that leader or whoever it is for long enough, after about five years of, of getting that messaging, the damage is sort of done. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways we can extend this lesson down to kind of how we work with kids and the potential impact that we have on young people when we're also sort of building their own way of thinking and their way of handling things that are uncomfortable. And lastly, another way that fear really shows up in school systems is we use it, we use intent to excuse impact. I see a lot, a lot of this right now around uh, tension around race. So uh, there's so many conversations that have been avoided for so long about race in schools and specifically in independent schools. And one of the ways that fear sort of operates is that because there's so many white people that are afraid of being racist, or perceived as racist, we sort of focus on people's intent as opposed to really focusing on the impact of years of all sorts of sort of nested systems that are systemically racist. And so you're seeing a real reckoning happening in our culture. And I know that you all are dealing with this. And I think it's a real invitation into uh, talking to kids and talking to teachers and talking to administrators and talking to parents about the importance of focusing on impact and not so much on intent. I, I wanted to at least share one thing that was kind of like a strategy or a tool that you could use and so what I'm gonna share with you is a tool that, you know, this is not my tool. I didn't make this up. Nothing that I'm sharing with you is, is my original idea. Um, so it's all kind of stolen with good intent. And it's called fear setting. And fear setting, uh, I didn't, has been around for a long time. I heard about it from Tim Ferriss, who has a, a podcast, but it's a really simple idea of what you can do with fear. Fear setting is oftentimes referred to as the opposite of goal setting. And you might think about, this year, because, you know, it's pretty normal for educators to, on a yearly basis, do some form of goal setting. 
you might think about just sort of incorporating uh, some fear setting into your process to kind of go hand in hand with some of your goal setting. So the way that fear setting works is that we imagine the worst case scenario. And the reason we do that is because we want to sort of allow for action against it because what happens when we're afraid of the worst case scenario is that the fear of the worst case scenario keeps us from doing anything. And so we sort of have this generalized fear and because it, that fear is sitting in us, we end up sort of being paralyzed and don't take action. And then that, and then that becomes the pattern. So here's how it works. So the first step is just really to define the worst case scenario. So you might just think this year, and again, we're not talking about like in life, you don't need to put down your life fears. You can just put down professional fears. List the worst things that could happen. List a couple things that would be on your list. And I, and I, I wanna kind of punctuate this point. It can be incredibly helpful to just do stage one in a group of colleagues where you create a container that is not about solving. So just sharing that we have fears, just sharing that part of the human conditions is that we have this worst case scenario list. This is a particular time in our world where some of these worst case scenarios are very real and very bad. Right, so just creating a container sort of to Wade's point that where it's okay to share that this is present in our work, that you're dealing with it, can be powerful in and of itself. But I'm gonna share with you also stage uh, or the next step. Okay, so after you've listed out uh, the worst things that could happen, you kind of go to step two. Step two is everything that you can do to sort of actively prevent the worst case scenario from occurring list out like what you could do to sort of actively prevent uh, those things from actually occurring. So again, the thinking here is that oftentimes when we have worst case scenario fears, the fear itself paralyzes us and we don't actually do things to actively prevent the fear from occurring. And so it becomes a little bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I've had a little experience just in the therapy world working with people around money problems. And what you notice with people that have money problems is that they're really afraid of having money problems. And then because they've been afraid of having money problems, they haven't done anything that is on the list of things to prevent their money problems. And so then it ends up creating a situation where they have a bunch of money problems, which then confirms to them why they should be afraid in the first place. And sort of this pattern starts occurring. The thought behind step two is really around sort of making it clear what you can do and then uh, giving you permission to sort of like, okay, like I've got that fear, I've written it down, I know what I need to do to prevent it and I'm going to do those things. And then we move to step three. And step three is really if the worst case scenario happens, how will I repair? Keeping in mind that some things happening like repair will look really different depending on what the thing is. So just take another minute or two, like in your own notes and just think a little bit about what you've written down and like how you might repair it if the worst happens. Keeping in mind that the word repair might be implicit that things are fixed and that's not necessarily how repair always works. So now you've done that, I'm just kind of showing you these steps. I know that I'm not giving you enough time to really delve into this, but sort of step four is like, like what are the benefits of facing this fear? So if you face the fear that you have and sort of go against it, what, is, what, what do you stand to gain? Sort of the last three questions are very similar, which is just really list the costs of inaction 
kind of in these different time frames. So if you are fearful and therefore not taking action, what's going to happen in six months from now? What's going to happen a year from now? What's going to happen three years from now? Sort of short term, medium term, like longer term, right? It's a very simple activity. And I think one of the things that when people do a lot of this work, kind of alongside goal setting, what they tend to notice is that some fears are really valid. So when you do fear setting with certain fears, you're like, yeah, like th that's bad. I don't want that to happen. Like I absolutely like th that, that is a very valid fear, right? And some fears become clear that they are not serving you in any way. Some fears sort of are unmasked and you realize that there is significant costs for letting those fears paralyze. And that if you don't start taking action um, around some of those fears, you are going to be held back in, in the goals that you have. And so again, part of this activity is really making that sort of distinction between fears that are um, really serving you and keeping you healthy and safe and fears that are really holding you back and getting in the way of the goals that you have for your career or for your own personal growth and development or for your department or for your classroom or for your school or you know you fill in the blank. So we had to just take one fear, but again, like this is a great opportunity to do this you know, with other groups that you may um, interface with. And we wanna think a little bit about this concept too, which is, is there a story that you're in that feels like a rut? So what's the rut story that you're telling? And Shell, Shell kind of captured this a little bit when she was saying, you know, there's this one type of person that keeps showing up. So that might be Shell's version of a rut story. You know, it's like everywhere I go, I've, I've got hard to deal with boss or whatever it ends up being. Or you might notice this as a teacher with a particular type of difficult student who shows up in your class every year and you find yourself thinking that it is a new student when in actuality it is like a type of student that you are always seeing as part of the rut story that you're telling. And then the flip side, kind of the, the opportunity with a rut story is how might you retell that story kind of with the metaphor of a river. And if you think about water, water always finds a way. So if you've ever had a leak in your house, you know that like water will always find a way to get around something. And so it's, it's similar with this metaphor of a river, which is a river has all sorts of, you know, bends and turns and obstacles and things, right? But the water flows. And so how might you turn what, what starts out as a rut story kind of into that river story? I think what I want to leave you with is this kind of this quote that I heard, which is like easy path, hard life, hard path, easy life. And it's this thought that um, it goes along with what we see in schools around like snowplow parents or like used to be helicopter parents, this idea that do you prepare the, the child for the path or do you prepare the path for the child? And the same is true when we think about our own sort of fears. And if we think about these little fears, cap, not capital F fears, right? Like COVID-19 and people dying in our family, that's a capital F fear, right? That's not a little F fear. But when we think about these little F fears, how might leaning into them really contribute to our goals and things like that? Wonderful day. I hope that this conversation gives you something to think about and that you'll have these conversations in your family, in your groups, that you'll explore more of this concept. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.